Well, good morning to you. You don't have to respond. That's fine. Thank you. Before we jump in today, I got to say, prepping for this this week was hard. And not there was, wasn't anything really super specific about what made it hard. One of the things was it was just like distraction after meeting, after thing. I got a crazy headache during the week. Uh, my wife went away for part of the weekend, you know, ditched her duties to look after all my children. I had to help. Also, as I'm writing these things down, I'm typing something out saying, this is how we're supposed to live. And I don't think I can say it because I don't live it. So as you're, I'm going to get some composure here. We're going to go. But as you're hearing me say things, as you're hearing me encourage you to live the way that God wants us to know that I was preaching this to myself this week and God was doing something inside me. And it was awesome. It was hard, but it was awesome because the good news that we've just sung now, the, the cool thing what Pat was just reminding us of is the fact that my shortcomings, they've been taken care of. And so let's read this this morning. In light of that, we are continuing our series between fulfillment, or promise and fulfillment. We're in Genesis chapter 16 this week, and it's a long passage. So I'm actually going to let you sit this time. We might change it for the next gathering. We'll see how they're doing. But Genesis chapter 16, if you've got a Bible, just turn there. You can follow along. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, and Sarai listened to, or pardon me, Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when he saw that she had conceived... She looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. 
Um, Most of us at one time or another have found ourselves, like Abram and Sarai, in the mucky, confusing, and often discouraging stretch between promise and fulfillment, like our series title. We're stuck in that spot that Dale Ralph Davis calls when God has the slows. When he's promised you something, but that something is taking longer than you initially expected. Or maybe he hasn't exactly promised you something, right? Something specific. But there's something that you're passionate about. Something you really, really want. And it's something that lines up with God's word. It seems good. It seems like God would want it for you too. It's something that you functionally consider a promise. And the temptation we face In those moments when we're waiting, when God has the slows, is to find a shortcut, a way to speed up the process, a way to get what we want without having to wait and submit to the process that God has for us. So my prayer for our time this morning is that we would be able to come to see that there is, as I've titled this message, no shortcut to blessing. It's encouraging, right? It's a good, cheery, happy, let's go get it title. Our passage today opens with these words. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. It's quite an opener. It's nine words, nine very full words. And it really does set the stage for all that's about to happen. Our our players are getting antsy, waiting for God. Because if God was going to be true to his promise, surely by now something would have happened. Ten years. Ten years ago, God said, Go, go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So they did. You've been following along with our series. They left. They banked everything on God's promise, a promise that suggested that Abram would in fact be a father, and that Sarai would in fact be a mother. So they travel for a bit. God again speaks to Abram. He says, to your offspring, I will give this land. So another iteration of this promise. There's not a lot to read into it. It's pretty clear. Abram and Sarai were to be parents. They continue on, right? A famine detours them into Egypt, where Abram apparently forgets how becoming a parent works, and he gives his wife to another man to be his wife. Things go poorly, they eventually get things sorted, and they move on. It's just a speedy recap. God again speaks to Abram. While Abram's looking over the land, God says to him, All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Offspring. Children, Abram and Sarai would be parents. This is a promise. They keep going. There's a bit where Abram has to go rescue his nephew Lot. Abram receives a blessing from Melchizedek, the priest of God Most High. And then Abram meets God again. But this time, like Sarai in our passage today, he's got a bit of a gripe with God, a bit of a grievance. They had set out years ago. He says to God, You told me I was going to be a father. And as it stands right now, I have to make one of my servants my heir. And God says this, no, your very own son will be your heir. Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. You will be a father 
I promise. And last week, Eric walked us through God's reiteration of this promise to Abram. He instituted a covenant, something that actually bound God to his word, which we know he was already bound to anyway, because he's always true to his word. This was for Abram's benefit. But at this point, those offspring, they just weren't there. And it didn't seem like they were coming. And it wasn't just Abram who had been frustrated. In our passage today, Sarai is getting antsy. She's got a lot riding on this promise also. Abram could have a child without Sarai, right? And we know that's where this is headed. But in a culture where for women, childlessness was tantamount to worthlessness, without God coming through on his promise, Sarah was destined to live the rest of her days, or the rest of her days in shame. So she comes up with a plan on her own that seems like it just might give her what she needs and, in a way, help fulfill the promise that God made to Abram. Which brings me to the first thing that I think we see here in our sermon that I have called No Shortcut to Blessing, and that's that there are shortcuts to blessing. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, you got to love those biblical euphemisms, that it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. No one wants to wait for anything. Right? We want what we want and we want it now. We're so impatient. We didn't all used to be. I mean, most of us are pretty impatient and have been most, most of our lives, but I can remember a time, and if you're old like me, you can remember a time as well, that unless a person was standing next to you or at their home in a room that had a telephone, you had no way of knowing if this person was dead or alive, right? It's like Schrodinger's cat, right? They're both dead and alive at the same time until they are in your presence or somewhere where you could reach them by phone. We had patience then. We had to. We worried everybody was dead all the time, but not anymore. <laughs> all that patience is gone. Like, look at me. Don't look too closely at me. I know that diet and exercise are the key to long-term sustainable physical health. Obviously, barring disease and genetic disorders, I know this is the case, but I love chips. I do. I also love not exercise. I also, though, want to fit into smaller pants and look good when I'm at the beach. Guess what? There's shortcuts for that, right? Surgery. Fad diets, medication, parasites, they can get that job done for you very quickly, but it's short term. They're there, short term. Now listen, I am not disparaging assistance for healthy living. Don't hear me saying that. I'm just saying, actually, maybe it should be somebody else who's actually doing these things should actually say this so that you could believe them. That long-term healthy life comes through hard work, through diet and exercise, but it's hard and it takes a long time. So we take shortcuts to get what we want everywhere in life. If you want to be more financially stable, don't change your spending habits. Tithe less or not at all. Tired of waiting for your spouse to meet your needs? Find somebody else who can meet them for you. Get creative with your accounting at work. Call in sick because you stayed up late watching Game of Thrones and don't want to go to work. You can take 
shortcuts to get what you want. And often the desire that we have, the thing we're trying to accomplish, isn't a bad thing. You know, financial stability, love, health, vacations, they're not evil desires. And often the shortcut we decide to take isn't a bad thing either, on the surface at least. We see this in our passage when we notice that what Sarah is suggesting isn't, practically speaking, a crazy idea. It's really just surrogacy, right? This, in this day, this was common and legal. Ancient writings dating back to the 15th century uh, BC, found in the ancient Mesopotamian city of Nuzi, Nuzi, Nutsi, you can tell me later, they explain the legal process for obtaining children if your wife was unable to conceive. And the process was exactly what Sarai suggested to Abram. So it's understandable. Socially acceptable, common, legal. On the surface, it looks to be helping to achieve the end that God has promised. Some of you in this room might actually be able to legitimately empathize with Sarai's plight. But just because we can sympathize or empathize with someone's reasons for shortcutting God's plan, it doesn't take away from the fact that it's outside of God's plan. It's sin. The truth is that part of God's plan also is the time that it takes to get there. One of the things that we learn from reading God's word and just in our own life experiences is that we don't grow in the shortcut. We don't learn in the shortcut. We don't change in the shortcut, but there are shortcuts, but they're deleterious. Do you like that word? Before you think I'm better than you for using that word. Full disclosure, I've never used it before. I did not know what it meant until Friday. Uh, I was on thesaurus.com looking for synonyms of harmful or damaging, and it turns out deleterious means harmful or damaging. So look again with me at the start of uh, verse 2, or the end of verse 2 here. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, his wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived... And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. So Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. Now there are a lot of deleterious things that happened as a result of it. I will only use that word a few more times so you think I'm smarter than I am. Verse 2, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Abram listens to his wife. Strike one, right? Guys, everybody knows this, right? No. Some of the guys in here are like, okay, do not listen to wife. That's not what we're saying here. But in this case, it happens to be a problem. And we're not talking about the kind of listening that husbands should do, where you're hearing your wife's input, you're valuing it, you're listening to her strengths, her hearing her fears, her songs of joy. But what Abram did in this moment was just chicken out, lazy, passive, selfish. And if he hadn't listened to the voice of Sarai, things would have gone differently. You might remember that Adam was cursed in Genesis 3 because he listened to the voice of his wife. God tells him, and I'm paraphrasing this, because you didn't do what I asked you to, because you used your wife as an excuse to sin, to shortcut my plan, life is going to be difficult for you. 
We see the same coming for Abram because of his cowardice. His relationships are nearly destroyed. He's going to father two people groups who are going to war with each other for the rest of history. Damaging, harmful. There's more bad things. Verse 3, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. Now, too many times I've been able to read that passage and pass over the grossness of what is actually taking place. I don't want us to make that mistake today. And we're not sure when Hagar joined with the Abrams on their journey, but we're told that she's Egyptian. It's very likely that when they were all in Egypt during that whole mess, Abram arranged the hiring of a maidservant for his wife. And even though Abram and Sarai had social and legal standing to do what they did, there was still an imbalance of power that would have left Hagar completely out of the decision process. Right? It wouldn't have been, hey, Hagar, let's have coffee. Have an idea to bounce off of you. Tell me what you think. It's up to you. No. Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram. She had no say. The good news here is that God sees the injustice. He doesn't stand for it. This kind of behavior is not okay with him. Not then, not now. And as we've read, he's on his way to meet Hagar in a pretty special way. But that's still to come. We're not done with all the bad stuff that's happened yet. Speaking of which, what about the fact that Abram has two wives now? It can be confusing sometimes reading the Old Testament accounts of all these polygamous heroes of the faith. Because it's not directly and clearly and explicitly discouraged in those pages. It can seem like the Bible condones polygamy. But if you work your way through those instances, you'll find that there aren't examples of it ever really working out for anyone. Pick almost any example of a man with multiple wives in the Bible and you'll find discord, jealousy, rape, murder, war. Not what God had in mind when he said a man is to leave his parents and to unite with his wife and become one flesh. One man, one woman, God's plan from the start. And if these stories teach us anything, and there's way more to it than this, but it's that going outside God's plan only leads to more trouble. Like the more trouble that we find in verse 4. When she, Hagar, saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Hagar is now in the family way. And she's now able to give something to the man on a mission from God that Sarai is incapable of doing for now. Proverbs 30, 21 to 23, I love this. Under three things the earth trembles. Under four it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king, and a fool when he is filled with food, and an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. It's biblical. It's intolerable. It's bad enough that she was just a pregnant woman, to be honest. Because, like, especially with your first kid, you know, I don't want to try to step on anyone's toes here. I couldn't get close enough to you to step on your toes anyway, though. But when you are pregnant with your first child, you think that you're the first person to ever do this? You're smug. No, this, I, I got to stop. I won't. I won't be totally mean, but there is this thing that happens in Hagar where she becomes intolerable to Sarai. 
That shortcut led to a pregnancy that poured salt into a deep and wide open wound that Hagar then poked and prodded until it was more than Sarai could bear. Which then leads to conflict between her and Abram and Hagar, this happy new family. Sarai lashes out again in verse 5, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Now, no one in here has probably had this exact fight with their spouse, I hope. But you've been in that kind of a situation, right? Close to it. The blame game just goes into full swing. You make a bad decision, it comes back to bite you. You start throwing blame. And we see it in Abram too, in verse 6. Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Whatever. It's not my problem. You fix it however you like. But if instead of blaming... Abram had done something. He had an opportunity to step in, to own his wrong, to love his wife well, to honor this young girl, but he doesn't. It's tense. It's driving a wedge in everyone's relationship. It's not good. And for Sarai, Abram's words just mean open season on Hagar. Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. We don't know what kind of treatment we're talking about here, Physical abuse, maybe. Almost certainly emotional and verbal, but it doesn't really matter. In God's plan, there is no place, no place for any kind of mistreatment of any person. All this hurt and discord coming from what seemed like a perfectly reasonable shortcut. Look, we're to take from this that shortcuts are bad. I don't know if you're getting that. Ian Dugan said this. An attitude of impatience and distrust is intensely dangerous. You're eager to see the events unfold and to have grown weary of waiting for God to act. You are anxious to see the way ahead. Instead of walking by faith, you want to see every obstacle removed immediately. Perhaps you long to be married or to have a child or to progress to a more fulfilling level in your career, yet you seem stuck at a dead end with no apparent prospect of seeing your hopes and dreams realized. What should you do when the promises of God seem slow in being fulfilled? Certainly, you may need to examine your own motives and obedience and to search your heart for hidden sins. Sometimes the desires of your hearts are turned in entirely the wrong directions. But what do you do when it seems that the desires of your heart are good and proper, yet they remain as unfulfilled as ever? You must continue to wait for God's timing. God is not slow, but neither is he in a hurry. We must wait on God's timing. Why? Because there are shortcuts to blessing, but not true blessing. Now, that point doesn't come specifically from any verse in that we're reading today. More of a conclusion reached after reading through this. Dugan posed a question when he asked, or posed a great question when he asked, What do you do when it seems like the desires of your heart are good and proper, yet they remain as unfulfilled as ever? Because I think that's the answer that we want, right? We want that question answered. Shortcuts are bad, I get it. So what? What do I do now? Do good. Close that quote with, you must continue to wait for God's timing. He's not slow, but he's in no rush. It's the worst answer. No one wants to hear that. But I don't think the intent of that answer is negative at all. I think it's hopeful. And it's actually course-correcting. One of my favorite promises in Scripture when I was younger, and even more selfish than I am now, which... 
crazy that that's possible. But one of my favorites was from Psalm 37, verse 4. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I can remember reading this and thinking, wow, I desire a lot. I'm going to get a lot of stuff if I can delight myself in God. Except, as it turns out, this is a bit of a sneaky promise. A good sneaky, if sneaky can be good. Because what you see when you actually look at this passage, and John Piper does such a good job of this in his book, Desiring God. I encourage you to go read it. If you delight yourself in the Lord, if your joy, your fulfillment, your happiness, in quotes, if it all comes from him, what becomes the desire of your heart? Actual question, what is it? Him, right? If you delight in the Lord, if you have, as Psalm 34 says, tasted and seen that God is good, what do you want? More of him. The car, the job, the spouse, the children, the house, the fame, the power, the vacation, they're not the desire of your heart. It's not a promise to give you the things that we so often desire. It's a promise to give you himself. And if the desire of your heart is the stuff, then you're not delighting in the Lord, and that promise is not for you. We have to understand that ultimate fulfillment comes from God himself, through his son Jesus, not through the things he's created. The things he's created are to point us to him. God's promise of the gift of a child to Abram and Sarai was not so that they could find fulfillment in their son, It was to draw them closer to the giver of good gifts in his son. Jesus even tells us, don't worry about the stuff. Seek first my kingdom. Seek first God's righteousness and all of these other things will be added to you. Because the beach vacation isn't the blessing. A fulfilling sexual relationship isn't the blessing. A blessing, sure. But those good things the Creator has given us, they're meant to point us to the blesser, who is the blessing. The blesser blessing us with himself. That's what this is about. So really, even though I've said there are shortcuts to blessing, the truth is there really aren't. For those of you taking notes, that's super confusing. I'm sorry. There are no shortcuts, but there are, but there aren't really... If we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and we do, that his promises are good and that he's faithful to fulfill them, that when he says, here is the way I want you to live, when he says, trust me, we have to believe that the end that he is taking us to is better than anything else we could want. The journey there might be difficult, it might be lengthy, it might be painful. Actually, no, it just will be. Forget maybe. It will be hard. It'll be difficult. I'll put it this way to help some of you understand. There's always going to be another mountain. You're always going to want to make it move. It's always going to be an uphill battle. Sometimes you're going to have to lose. It ain't about how fast I get there. It ain't about what's waiting on the other side. What is it? It's the... Yeah, my kids, thank you. It's the climb, right? And while Miley Cyrus is most about right, or mostly right about everything, she's, she's not. The climb is a huge part, an important part, one that shouldn't be shortcut, but it is also about what's waiting on the other side. 
It's the blessing, the blessing that God gives us in both the process and the arrival. In James 1, we read, Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Joy, count it joy. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When you're in the dumpster fire of trials, waiting for God to change your situation, you're begging him to, and he just isn't, the fire hasn't done its job yet. The process of purifying silver and gold is to put it in the furnace, to melt it down, to separate, to burn off and remove the impurities. There's no shortcut to that. The blessing God wants to give you is a steadfast faith in him, which makes you want more of him, which is also the blessing that he wants to give. But there's no shortcut to it. Something else that we see in our passage today is that even when we do shortcut God's plan, he meets us in the wilderness. Look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing my mistress Sarai. She's on the run. It would appear she's on her way back to Egypt. She's broken. She's pregnant. She's hurting. She's abused. And the angel of the Lord comes to her. As to who this is, all we know is that he's referred to as the angel of the Lord, whether it's just an angel messenger or if it's potentially the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, you know, Jesus before he was Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. What we see here is that God himself is the one who seeks her out in her distress. He's a God who is deeply concerned with justice. And here was a girl who had been met with grievous mistreatment. Her plight had not gone unnoticed. The wrongs done to her would not be left unaddressed. He says, Hagar, he calls her by name. Where have you come from and where are you going? He knows who she is. He knows where she's been. He knows where she's going. We're to see here that God does know, that God does see, that he does hear. I think all of us at times have questioned this truth. Psalm 13 begins with, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? It's a sentiment so many of us can appreciate, but as we've said before here, feeling and truth are not always the same thing. I'm sure that Hagar had heard Abram talk about this God with his great promises and his power, but right now she's tired, beat down, rejected, unloved, and there's no way this God cares about me. And if he does, he's powerless to rescue me from these awful people. And as she's sitting by the well, that same God with all his promises and power shows up and meets her there. Psalm 147, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. This God that Hagar, sorry, that seeks Hagar out, this is our God. Do you need to hear that this morning? Because I think we do. I do. He loves you. He's with you. And he so desperately wants you to give up your desire for the things, the created things that you're hoping for and replace it with a desire for more of him. He meets Hagar in her brokenness. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. But something unexpected happens next, which we see in our next point here, that God meets us in the wilderness, but he doesn't always take us out of it. 
The angel of the Lord said to her, verse 9, return to your mistress and submit to her. That's awful. This broken woman is instructed to go back and submit herself to Sarai, even though the path is certain to include continued mistreatment, which we know it does. This is part of God's plan for her future, for her legacy, for her blessing. It's not the news she was hoping for. It's not the news you're hoping for either, right? God meeting us in the wilderness, though, it's not always about him coming to take us out. In our study on 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we came across this verse. No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And you might remember that that word temptation, the Greek word parasmus, can also be translated as trial. So that verse could be read like this in the New Andy version. No trial has taken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tried beyond your ability. But with the trial, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He shows up to remind you, hey, I'm here. He knows. He sees. He hears. But rather than pulling you out of the affliction, he reminds you that he's got this. And he asks you, do you trust me? And it's our job to do that, to trust him. And it's hard to do. But as we looked at last week, it's not just blind faith. We've seen God come through time and time again. He's already proven himself. And as we see with Hagar, he doesn't just leave it at go back to the hard stuff. He doesn't just say, just trust me. He also gives her some incentive, which is a pretty cool thing. In verse 10, we read that God meets us in the wilderness and promises justice. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall name his, or call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kingmen. Kings, blah, kingsmen. Sorry. It's pretty cool that she is given almost the exact same promise that Abraham is given, with some notable differences. The promise is a son. His name will be Ishmael, and from him will come innumerable offspring. Those offspring are not going to be a blessing to all the families of the world, but lots of offspring. She's also told that Ishmael and his people will be wild and will not be a people of peace. That Hagar's kid, I like this part, that Hagar's kid would be a major pain for Sarai's kid. And we know this to be true today. They're still going at it. That's a little bit of justice for, Sarah, for Hagar. It might seem like a strange promise in our eyes, but this was still a promise. This was an offering of justice after the injustice she had received. The promise is also meant to be an encouragement to her as she goes back to submit to Sarai. Something she can hold on to, something that will give her hope and a reason to keep going. And when God meets us in the wilderness, I don't know if he's come and promised you nations of children, but he does give us something. Listen to this from Luke 18. Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he, Jesus, said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife, or brothers, or parents, or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and the age to come, eternal life. 
What is he promising us in that moment? More parents? No. More of him. We're back to that. As we follow Jesus more closely, as we fall more in love with him, as we see that he is worth so much more than anything that we could ever want or have, the list here, house, wife, brother, parent, child, we could add all the things into that list, but anything that we might have to give up for the sake of the kingdom of God is worth it. Jesus tells the story of a man who found a treasure in a field, and what did he do? He went and he sold everything he had so he could buy that field. Why? Because in that field was a treasure worth more than everything that he had. What's the treasure that Jesus is talking about in that moment? Him. Not gold, not health, not fulfillment at work. He is the treasure. And the amazing thing about the promise given to Hagar at the well is that even though it just looked like an earthly blessing, she saw past that gift to the giver of it. And it moved her heart toward him, and her response is awesome, which brings us to our last point. Don't worry, we are coming in for a landing. God meets us in the wilderness, and we've got to remember when he does. Verse 13, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. If you're anything like me, you tend to forget things. I can remember the dumbest things, though. I can remember entire 90s rap and pop album lyrics, like all of them. But I forget everything else. I'll say I'll remember. Sometimes I actually say it out loud. I did this last night before going to bed. I will remember this in the morning. I forgot it. God and Hagar take some steps to make sure that this moment is not forgotten. First, Hagar names the Lord. She gives a name to God. Lots of scholars believe she's the only person who got to do that. She calls him the God who sees. He met her in such a personal way. Not only did she get to see him herself, she actually was seen and known by him personally. He wasn't a far-off God, like a celebrity that we, we kind of know lots about, but they don't know us at all. And now, anytime that Abraham or someone back home speaks of this God who made this promise, she's going to be reminded of the one who did that, the one who met her at the well. They named the well Bir Lahai Roy, which means well of the living one who sees me. Any subsequent visit to that well for her would be a reminder of what happened. Others would also come to know who God is in his character by visiting this well. And finally, when her son arrives, Abram gives him the name Ishmael, which means God hears. It was the name Hagar was instructed to give him, but we're told that Abram actually does the naming. Now, we're not sure if, he, or if she was the one who told Abram this, which would mean he listened to his wife again, or if Abram was given this name supernaturally, but either way, the name is going to serve as a reminder Every time she whispered his name or yelled at him when he was acting up, she'd be reminded of the one who met her in the wilderness, the one who heard her cry for help. Now, how is that applicable to us today? Does it mean we name our kids something meaningful when God does something great? Maybe. I have friends who, after a horrible time in their marriage that almost ended in divorce, they had a child and they named her Grace. For that reason, 
They wanted to look at her and say her name and be reminded of the great gift that they'd been given and the one who gave it. That doesn't have to be naming a child. It can be a simple thing like writing a note in your Bible. I have a student Bible that I wrote a note in years ago about a time that God spoke to me so clearly it might as well have been audible. So I wrote it down. I go back to it still. Others write songs. Others get reminders tattooed on their bodies. Some people throw parties. At Crossridge, we throw a party with all of our volunteers every year called Remember and Celebrate. You know what we do? We celebrate and we remember. We eat. We play. We write things down that God has done over the last year and then we read them aloud. We pray together, thanking Him for what He's done. We worship. It's a good time. It helps us remember. That kind of behavior is recorded throughout Scripture. Festivals, feasts, all in the name of remembering the times that God found us in the wilderness and worked in strength and grace to give us what we actually needed, which is more of him, to make us want him more, and he will bless us with more of him. So here's the deal. When we're stuck in between promise and fulfillment, when we're growing impatient and we're tempted to shortcut God's plan, we need to be reminded that God does in fact see us, hear us, know us, love us, and wants to give more and more of himself to us, and there's no shortcut to that blessing. But even when we try, because we will, we will continue to shortcut God's plan all the time. When we do, his grace invades our life to draw us to himself. And we need to set up reminders so that we don't forget how good God is and all that he's promised us, which is something we do each week when we celebrate communion. I'll ask the band and the servers to make their way up. We remember In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives us these instructions. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance, remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread... And drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's promised to return. And so we celebrate this to remember what he's done and remember the promise that we've been given. That he is going to return to fully take us and rescue us completely from the wilderness.